You're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I review one episode of Rod Serling's iconic series and round out the show with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's main topic. I also cover modern anthology science fiction shows such as Black Mirror and Hulu's Dimension 404 in bonus episode review series. You can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. You can tweet me at obsessiveviewer, or you can send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Today on the podcast, I'll be discussing The Man in the Bottle. It's the second episode of The Twilight Zone's second season, and it aired on October 7th, 1960. And for this week's bonus review, I'll share my thoughts on... Uh, I'm going <laughs> to... I don't remember how to pronounce this, but uh, it's a Jesuit. Um, it's episode 21 of The X-Files' seventh season um, that also has a genie-in-a-bottle um, plotline. Um, and before I get into it, seriously, that's going to be fun to say later in the episode. But anyway, before I get into it, I just want to point out that um, one of the one of the other uh classic science fiction shows of the time uh was one step beyond which i've i believe i reviewed one or two episodes in season one as bonus reviews um but i just want to point out that i just found out that it's available on amazon prime all three seasons so that's pretty cool so go check that out if you uh want to see one step beyond as usual for the podcast, um, I'm going to start off by reading a plot description of The Man in the Bottle. Um, it comes courtesy of Twilight, The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the plot description. Here, here going forward, it's going to be completely spoiler-filled. So if you haven't seen The Man in the Bottle yet, go check it out and then uh, come back and listen to this because I'm going to be spoiling the entire episode. Arthur Castle, owner and operator of an antique shop with a heart as big as his store, is around the corner from bankruptcy before because he longs for a more profitable business with cheery surroundings. One afternoon, however, Mr. Castle discovers a genie in a bottle who offers the castle's four wishes of a guaranteed performance. Arthur at first disbelieves what he sees, but wishes for a broken glass to be fixed for verification, which is accomplished promptly. Failing to accept the consequences of his wishing, Mr. Castle asks for a million dollars so he can clean up his debt, only to suffer from an accountant at the IRS who confiscates most of his most of the cash. Arthur's third wish is for power, so he can rule a foreign country that cannot vote him out of office, and finds himself transformed into Adolf Hitler during his last moment in charge. Using his fourth and final wish, he returns to his antique shop, disposing of the bottle and the genie inside. Arthur is now content with his present debt and the drabness of his store. So... I'm going to run through some of the talent in this episode, as I usually do. Uh, this episode stars Luther Adler as Arthur Castle. This was uh, somewhat sadly his only Twilight Zone episode. I, I liked his performance a lot in this, and it's a shame that we won't see any more of him. Um, he 
he uh, previously worked with Serling in, let's see, a 1955 episode of General Electric Theater uh, titled Man with a Vengeance that was written by Serling and uh, actually starred Ronald Reagan. And then he also worked with Serling in an episode of Playhouse 90 that Serling wrote back in 1959 titled The Rankin File, um, which I tried to find that. I don't think I could find that anywhere, um, which is unfortunate. Um, as Edna Castle is Vivi Janice, this is her second and last episode of The Twilight Zone. She was she uh, previously portrayed Flora Gibbs in The Fever, and rounding out the cast of characters is Joseph Ruskin as the genie. Uh, this is his first. This is his first of two credited. I shouldn't say credited, but first of two instances credits, I guess, for the Twilight Zone. The next is actually an uncredited voice role in To Serve Man. Um, he also worked on uh, in one segment of Night Gallery in 1971 titled The Messiah on Mott Street. And he was also in one episode of The Outer Limits titled Production and Decay of Strange Particles in 1964. Um, so The Man in the Bottle was written by Rod Serling. I don't really have any trivia about that. I do have um, some maybe interesting, I don't know, but the total production costs for the episode were $45,462. And the episode was filmed in three days in late July 1960 with uh, two rehearsal days before filming. And director for this episode was Don Medford. This is his second of five Twilight Zone episodes. He previously directed A Passage for Trumpet. And next we'll see from him will be The Mirror, which is in season three of The Twilight Zone. So now we've come to my feelings as a first-time viewer of the episode. Um, what I knew about the episode going in was absolutely nothing, actually. Um, I just I had no idea what this, what, uh, this episode was about. So it was a fun kind of discovery that it was a genie episode um for me and kind of going off of that going into the episode i was trying to i was trying to detect what type of episode it was um and i kept kind of coming up short i uh i assumed or i thought for a second that it was a deal with the devil type of episode um because they really laid the groundwork of of the castles being in debt and uh basically having to pick what bills they need to pay, prioritize which bills they need to pay, and then kind of having that very sad response from from Arthur saying that he can't pay the bill. Like it's the, I think I think it was like the fourth month due, and that bill needs to be paid, but he can't pay the bill. It's it's very sad. And then the, the older lady comes in and wants to sell him this, this, uh, heirloom, this bottle. And I, I really like this, this scenario or, or how this, how this comes about as a piece of characterization for Arthur Castle, because she comes in and she's, she's wanting to part with this thing that she says in is, is an heirloom, but it's clear like everyone is down on their luck. Everyone is, is, you know, needs something. So Arthur eventually comes to the decision to give her a handout uh, or not necessarily a handout, but just, you know, take her up on the offer, say, Hey, here's, here's a little bit of money for this. This is all I can. I wish I could do more. And it's just, it's a really kind of sad exchange between the two because it was, it's just, I don't know. I, it's, it, I don't know. It spoke to me. It was, it was kind of 
it was nice and, and sad and showing that castle showing that Arthur gave her the dollar and uh and was remorseful that he couldn't give more uh just really really showed like his compassion it's it's so great to have an episode where we have a a really strong relatable character like this isn't someone who's just sinking into a twilight zone scenario that's that's going to cause him like a downfall or anything not that there are really that many that focus on like a a terrible people terrible person but it's just nice to show that this character in particular is is a is a pretty compassionate character kind of reminds me a little bit of um in kind of a vague way a, a little bit uh of one for the angels where um the character in that was just a really decent human being and Arthur is kind of a similar type of character. And then you have Edna come in and this was this was really refreshing cuz I've been noticing throughout the throughout the series that um as I've been going through it that a lot of the kind of uh marital figures the the wife mostly wives of the of the lead characters in these episodes are kind of kind of angrier or uh shrill and angry toward the toward the main characters i'm thinking of like um a, uh, a world of difference and the fever too a little bit well, maybe not so well yeah anyway um it's just nice to see that this episode positions both edna and arthur um as having these opposing viewpoints and opposing ideas for how to handle their situation and the situation with the genie and the positions of both of them are just really well drawn and they're kind of steeped in characterization like Edna's angry at him and that anger isn't this domineering like I know more than you because I'm because I'm I just know more than you it's not like an I'm better than you in this scenario thing it's not anything like that it's clear that they're both together in this and that she's really her anger at him is comes from a, a place of a need for survival because they're against the ropes. They're really close to uh, bankruptcy essentially. And so they're making these decisions, not for personal, not, not in terms of like a personal profit or not in terms of, it's not out of greed. It's out of survival. That's what I'm getting at is it's, it's this, it's this way out of their predicament and they're both in this particular, they're both in this particular predicament and they're both finding ways out and those ways out, those ways that they are coming up with are in contrast with each other in, in various ways. And it's, it's a really well done um, dynamic to present for these two characters. And I really appreciated that about the episode. And also this is more, me than anything um i'm not uh, the the genie gives them four wishes which i thought was interesting because i've only really ever known like genies genie stories to be three wishes but i appreciate that they gave them four because they could have the first one that's just fixing the glass display um just for sake just to show the as a show of power essentially or a test of it so it's nice that they didn't it's nice that serling gave them that four four wishes and didn't have them it made sense is what i'm getting at and what i like about this 
type of story really is that this is a very relatable situation, a very, um, it's an not, I guess, audience friendly plot line because this is the kind of thing that you watch this type of episode, this type of story, and you immediately put yourself into the uh, character's shoes and into the character's situation. And you think, what would I do? Like, what would my wishes be when, if I had a genie and, uh, and like, I've like, these are just mental exercises that I've done in, in my life. That's just like, I mean, cause I worked for like seven years working third shift doing nothing. So I had a lot of free time to just want, like let my mind wander. But, um, like this is stuff that, I mean, people think about all the time. This is just like how, what would I need to drastically improve my current life? Like, like how it is and like, how can I, what would be a good way to just, just immediately reap the benefits in the best way possible. And with the tendency for genie episodes like this or genie stories like this to always have this, this backfire aspect to it, I've always thought that I would just go as detailed as possible. <laughs> and it always kind of frustrated me. Like, why, why not go as detailed as possible and say, I want, I want a million dollars, but I don't want it to be taxed by the IRS. I don't want it to be, to cause any problems with my life. I wouldn't want it to be or my personal life and personal relationships with other people. And I would like it to be a great situation for me and let it be money that like my entire family for the rest of for generations can reap the re rewards from. But I mean, I get it. I, I get it that you need to have that kind of, uh, I guess knee jerk kind of thing, but I'll get to that in my bonus review, I'm sure. But anyway, I really like how Edna was against the whole proposition, uh, against pretty much everything, not necessarily against everything, but like warning against like his, like Arthur's choices. Um, it was just, it was just a cool dynamic. Um, I'm going back to that. I know, but it was just a cool situation to put these two characters in. And it was, I liked the way that Edna's character, that the character of Edna was kind of in shock from the whole thing. Um, at least in those early parts. And so, uh, Arthur wishes for a million dollars and after that, we get this really nice Frank, Frank Capra. It's a wonderful life scene where they're giving, they're giving the money away, um, to a bunch of people. It's very, very much. It's a wonderful life. It's like, here, you do this. You, you can get this. It's just another situation where like, we didn't, we didn't necessarily need to have Arthur and Edna like giving away money to their friends and stuff. We didn't, we didn't need that because we already knew that they're compassionate people, or at least that Arthur is compassionate because he, uh, gave it to, um, to, to the lady, um, at the beginning. But to have it be a situation where, um, they have all this money and the first thing they do is they give away up, up to like $60,000 to people that they're close to and their, their friends, it's really, really nice and it really makes you, dig deeper into rooting for these characters because the kind of flip side of that is that they could have easily gone through like a, um, a scenario where like the, the consequence of getting a million dollars is that it changes them and alienates them from everyone. Um, but this was such a nice and such a, such a grounded way to handle this, this million dollar 
uh, windfall for for the castles because it didn't change them. It didn't change their situation aside from aside from you know making them have a million dollars. Um, it didn't change their personalities. It was it's very much grounded to where to what these characters were set up as in the first in the first act and on the other hand of that is that uh the irs coming to tax the uh to tax the money it's just it's such a logical um it's such it's such a great logical consequence to having that because it's not anything that's earth shattering or anything it's just that's what the government's going to do is they're going to tax your money and it's going to leave you with something. It's going to leave you with $5 um, after everything. And it's so, it's so disappointing and everything, but in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's, you know, it's not the worst consequence, obviously, but it, uh, I, I really liked that. I liked the, the logic of that. And then we obviously get the let's wish for more wishes kind of thing which is not permitted and like i get that sure i mean you kind of need that in this episode you need that in really any story any any genie story like this because that is what you immediately wish for is unlimited wishes um which again i kind of wonder if there i'm <laughs> i almost said i kind of wonder if there is a way around that as if there's really genies and stuff by the way guys it's 2 a.m so i'm i'm a little out of it. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I could just imagine like having a character say something like, okay, well, I don't want unlimited wishes, but I would like to have you around for more wishes. But yeah, that wouldn't work. So Arthur Castle's next wish, and this is where I get kind of, I don't know. Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm just going to kind of talk my feelings out about this because it's kind of, it didn't connect with me that much. Um, because he was looking for something with no no consequences, and his actual words were that he wants something anchored and something airtight. And then, like, he says that, but somehow that translates to having power, which, I don't know, I guess saying it out loud makes a little bit of sense to me now, but, like, I, you, you would... <sighs> Maybe I'm just coming at it the wrong way, but I'm just thinking like if you wish to have power, you're going to I mean that that seems like kind of just a really obvious way to have really really horrifying consequences because I I don't know, it's it's I it didn't really track for me when he uh when he wished to be a dictator. And uh like as soon as he said it just kind of it kind of seemed to contradict what he what he was setting up setting up with. He was looking for something with no consequences, no consequences, something anchored, something airtight, and then he wishes to be a dictator of a foreign country that can't vote him out. Which I don't know. It just that connection seemed like a little bit of a leap to me, especially after he knew ahead of he's already known that there are consequences to these to these wishes. Um, that there that there will be consequences to the wishes, but the the way that the episode <laughs> reveals the major consequence of that was like 
such a nice, like such a great comedic beat for me because he ends up being Hitler. Not only does he end up being Hitler, but he ends up being Hitler at the very last, like at the end of his, of his reign of, of, of at when he's in the bunker, um, when he's about to commit suicide. And I, man, I just, I don't know. I thought that that was like, I, I kind of, if I, if I had been drinking something, I probably would have done a spit take at that moment because that's such, that's such a great like reveal, like a great comedic beat to have him be Hitler. Um, even if the setup for that wish didn't really gel with gel with my expectations or, or once with it. And then he has to, he's forced to use his fourth wish on getting back to the antique shop, which I thought was okay. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a good way to kind of end that cycle, I guess. And then, I mean, that's kind of most of the episode. I mean, there's not really much else to really talk about, um, with this episode. It's kind of a, it's kind of straightforward, but at its heart, it kind of seems like a really, a sweet cautionary tale. Um, Arthur and Edna end up being kind of brought closer together by the genie's presence. And, um, then at the end, uh, them breaking the glass that, I mean, that's a nice touch. That's a, that's a nice note to leave the episode on. Um, and I, I really like, I think, I think it's just a really sweet sentiment that this experience with the genie, um, and this experience in the twilight zone gave Arthur this perspective that, you know, the antique shop is, you know, it's, it's not a prison. It's not, that much of a drain on, on his life. It's, it's, it's not the, sh- this shrine to failure itself. It's this thing that, uh, he's happy with uh, as is. And they kind of, I don't know. I just, I just like the way that Arthur and Edna, Arthur and Edna are just closer together by the end of this episode. Um, I thought that that was a, a nice, a nice moment for the show. And I like that it wasn't, uh, that they came out of the Twilight Zone unscathed. I'll say that. So trivia for this episode, uh, Luther Adler had previously portrayed Hitler in two uh, films back in 1951, um, in The Magic Face and uh, The Desert Fox. Um, so that, that was kind of interesting. And kind of, I guess, the origin for the um, for the genie in the bottle kind of, idea, I guess, or I'm, I'm sure that the, I mean, I'm sure that the actual origin goes back way further, but, uh, there's a 19 or 1891 short story by Robert Louis Stevenson called the bottle imp. And then a, and then of course the 1901 short story, the monkey's paw by WW Jacobs. Uh, both of those feature an object, an object that contains the supernatural power that can grant wishes, um, and then, and then kind of has the, the lesson in the story that, uh, it's a dangerous power to wield. And, uh, according to the Twilight Zone, unlocking the door to a television classic, the swastika hanging on the wall is actually backwards. Um, it's supposed to be the other way. Um, and that was just a, something that was never caught. And also there was an alternate ending to the show, uh, which had a bum, picking up the bottle from the trash and, and walking away the bottle having been having been having repaired uh itself and in having this alternate ending there's actually an alternate um closing narration 
to fit with that closing shot, essentially. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit, or read from the uh, uh, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. I'm going to read the original, or the alternate, uh, closing narration. Um, so after after the bum picks up the picks up the bottle, uh, Sterling comes in and says, and perhaps this man too will realize that there is an economics to magic too, rather a high cost of wishing. He may learn this fact just as soon, just as he'll soon realize in a very strange way, all roads lead to the twilight zone. So that's interesting. I'm kind of, I'm glad that they, that they didn't do that because it would seem to be kind of in contrast of what the actual, um, bottle and uh, the actual mythology set out in the opening scenes of the episodes established. Cause that would insinuate that the bum would pick up the bottle and get the genie out of it and have his own misfortune and everything. Whereas in kind of the opening scene with the genie, uh, the genie actually explains that he goes back he comes out and then goes back in for 101 years or for a century in one year. um, before he comes out again. And it just kind of seems in contrast of this guy picking up a bottle, implying that he would, he would get it, uh, have the same misfortunes brought upon him. So I don't know, but I'm glad that they went the way that they did. And also leave, if they had left on that note, it kind of would have, for me, probably diminished a little bit of the, the sweetness to the episode, because it would be more of a foreboding kind of thing to have, um, to have it end on that note, but the way we end it now, it's more focused on Arthur and Edna. And again, it's just a really sweet sen- uh, sentiment to end the episode on. Um, so overall, I mean, this is kind of feels like a little bit of a brief review, I guess I'm a little out of practice again, but, um, overall, I think that this is just a really sweet story about a down on their luck couple that gain perspective on their life and on what's important. Um, the castles are overall, they're decent people. And I really think that they may be, if not the best written, um, then at least my favorite, like couple in the twilight zone so far, cause they're so there's, they work together so well. And, and there's such a balance to that writing, uh, to that writing there that I just really, I kind of, was really rooting for these characters a lot more than I've found myself rooting for other characters in, in the twilight zone so far. Um, and I just think that their story and the way that both viewpoints are illustrated in the episode, I think that that, I think that that really just makes the episode for me. And this is again, just a really sweet episode and I really enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, that's going to do it for my review of The Man in the Bottle. Um, before we move on to this week's bonus review, here's a highlight from episode 184 of The Obsessive Viewer, in which me and Tiny uh, reviewed raunchy comedies, um, and talked. I talked a little bit about Black Mirror. Of course, The Obsessive Viewer being a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friend Tiny, along with some occasional guest co-hosts um, every now and then. Yeah, so here's the clip. I think it's kind of a good thing that, that for me, a lot of these movies, my experiences with them happened when I was younger. Because mm-hmm. I guess, I mean, intr- they're intrinsically childish uh, right. because you're talking about silly, frivolous things and it's all it's all about objectifying women and, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I think if I had come, if I had seen a lot of these movies as an adult, I'd, I would have just passed them off completely. Mm-hmm. 
You can find The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at ObsessiveViewer.com. And you can find the episode you just heard a clip from at ObsessiveViewer.com slash OV184. So my bonus review is, again, I'm going to butcher this, uh, Jess Suet, um, the, uh, an episode of The X-Files from Season 7, Episode 21. And yeah, I, I kind of was at a loss for what episode or what, what work to review for this bonus review. Um, so I was glad to find that the, the X-Files had a Genie in the Bottle episode. Um, so yeah. And I was also kind of disappointed to find out that the X-Files is no longer on Netflix. Um, that was kind of a shock to me, but fortunately it's still available on Hulu. So if you have Hulu, check it out there or, um, or, you know, whatever. I'm not, I'm not going to spoil the episode, um, in this review as I usually don't spoil episodes in my bonus reviews, but I'll actually read the description courtesy of IMDb. Okay, the plot description courtesy of IMDb is two brothers have a less than helpful genie who grants their wishes with disastrous consequences. Mulder comes into possession of the same genie and his wishes garner similar results. Um, This episode was written and directed by Vince Gilligan, who went on to create, obviously, Breaking Bad. And uh, also Michelle McLaren was a producer on this episode. Um, I didn't realize that she worked on uh, the X-Files. So that's that was kind of a nice surprise to see in the credits, I guess. So this episode starts out with this kind of shocking thing. Um, kind of one of the lead characters is this guy named Anson who's kind of lazy and he's being uh, really... Um, her- verbally harassed by his boss because he's not doing his job essentially. So what happens is Anson discovers this genie and uh, he wishes for the boss to shut up and what, Oh, like I'm so glad this was just only in the beginning of the episode. Like I'm kind of getting a little nauseous just thinking about it, but what happens is there's, like his mouth disappears. So it's just a skin patch, uh, where his mouth should be. And it's cool. It's, it's like a, it's a cool effect. By the way, this episode aired in in the year 2000. Um, I should have clarified that, but, uh, the next we see of him, like after the opening credits, this is just like, it makes me, it makes me kind of sick to think about it, but, um, he's had his, he's had a, a new mouth, surgically created. I'm seriously getting nauseous just thinking about it. I'm cause like the pain, uh, uh, anyway, it's just, it's really gross. Like there's only like a little bit of scene. Like you only get that one scene. It's kind of the, it's kind of what alerts Mulder and Scully to, uh, to this story. It's like kind of the jumping off point. Cause they end up going after Anson and, and everything. But I mean, just, uh, uh just the way that it's shown is just really gross and ugh. hats off to the X-Files because they really did an incredible job with that uh, in terms of the showing just the, uh, just uh. anyway. Um, seriously, I'm going to need to pause this and take a drink of water or something. Cause I'm seriously just, uh, yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> Yeah, so this episode was written and directed by Vince Gilligan. 
And uh, the actor who plays Anson, I like it was it was so getting it was getting under my skin because I couldn't figure out where I knew him from. But it just kind of dawned on me like midway through the episode that he's the guy that played the Lord of the Rings fan in Clerks 2, which I thought was such a random thing for me to pull. But uh, but yeah, and I thought he did a I thought he did a really good job. He's kind of this this kind of weasel weaselly guy who who he's basically the genie in a bottle storyline uh uh greed personified character um that's kind of the he's fits that archetype for the genie in the bottle uh storylines and the genie in this episode is just is is a woman um who is seemingly immortal and and we get some cool s- some uh some cool shots or some cool scenes where Mulder is investigating the woman and finding her picture uh in the in the past and that was a really cool technique because what it did in terms of the narration or the narrative is that it it placed her in some uh specific historical uh contexts that really fit the kind of genie genie wishes with consequences, uh, uh, storyline. Um, I thought that was a really cool, a really cool way, uh, to do that. Um, a really cool way to, to kind of develop this character in this, in this world. Um, and then there's one like, uh, um, so I felt like I felt like the writing in this episode was making fun of me in a weird way uh because Anson one of his wishes is to he, that he wants to be invisible. And by the way, after he has left his job because he, you know, destroyed his boss's life, um he goes with the genie to his to his brother who is a wheelchair bound uh uh Will Sasso. Which I thought was a nice, a nice, uh, surprise because I, I enjoy Will Sasso as an actor. Um, and he fit in well with this, with this, uh, episode. But anyway, Anson's second, second wish is to be invisible, which I thought, <laughs> like, when that happened, I was like, that's actually a pretty cool wish. Like, it's, it's not that he wants to be invisible, it's that he wants to, uh, be able to become invisible whenever he wishes. Um, which I thought was just a really cool, a really cool wish. And then in like the next, like after I had that thought, like in the next scene, the genie just says, just says in a very sarcastic tone saying that, uh, that the wish is breathtaking in its, in its originality. Um, yeah. And, and the whole episode really has this nice comedic energy to it. Um, like there's this running gag where, um, the genie is, implying that they should wish for uh Will Sasso's characters Will Sasso's character to walk again um because he's in this wheelchair but Anson is so uh consumed with his own greed and his own his own wishes that he doesn't even like that doesn't even register with him as a possibility and Will Sasso is also uh, is also completely, uh, completely oblivious to the fact that he could wish to walk again. It's, it's really, 
I don't know. It it was really a funny a funny running gag, and it also had, um, it also had a really great payoff. Um, I'll leave it at that because I don't want to spoil it. But like, I just I got a huge kick out of that running gag throughout the episode. Um, and so like, kind of at this point in the episode, I I was actually thinking like, I haven't watched much of the X Files. I mean, I've I watched it growing up, or I watched parts of it growing up when my parents would watch it. And I remember being freaked out by the opening credits and everything, much like any other kid would be. Um. And like I've only seen a, a couple episodes like from beginning to end, and that's at least one of them is because of this podcast. Um, so anyway, so I I've I haven't watched much of it, and um, I, so I haven't watched much of it, but I I don't really know how the conceit of a skeptic paired with a conspiracy theorist like that main plot device throughout the series is, but I don't I don't. Like, uh, I'm fumbling everything. Um, I haven't watched much of The X-Files, but I don't know how the main conceit of the show, which is pairing a skeptic in Scully with a conspiracy theorist uh, believer with Mulder, um, I don't know how that conceit could keep up with such a wildly out there and clearly paranormal and supernatural plot like this. Um, I mean, this is in season seven of the show. So clearly this is well into their run. So maybe, maybe that kind of gets them a, uh, that can, maybe that can kind of give them some leeway there because I mean, after seven years, what are you going to do? That's, that's fresh and original that, that can keep it a skeptic and, and, uh, believer dynamic without raising too many questions. Um, but this is like from the outset, this is like clearly a very, uh, clearly paranormal or supernatural kind of situation. But that's not to say that they, that they dump the skeptic angle of it because they have, uh, Scully, Scully, uh, comes up with a theory about the, about the man, uh, the man's mouth fusing together. That's really just about it. <laughs> um, because after, after Anson becomes invisible, when Mulder and Scully get to him, um, Scully is just really fascinated by it. She's kind of almost swayed by it. Um, and after I had that thought about how the conceit, how, how the show's cons- main conceit can, can kind of, uh, handle being in this, uh, this type of plot line. Um, right after that, Scully like calls attention to that exact thing. And she says in the seven years we've done this, this takes the cake for like the most crazy out there thing. Um, so, I mean, I guess I can give them, I can give them that benefit. Um, or the benefit of that doubt because I mean, yeah, they call attention to it and, I mean, Scully wasn't completely, um, her, her, her characterization of being a skeptic wasn't completely disregarded, um, in this episode. So that gets a pass, I guess. Yeah. I mean, after a point, I won't go into too much, too much details, um, or too many details because it will give away some pretty pretty heavy plot points here but once Mulder gets to the point where he gets his own wishes um 
it's really kind of it's it's kind of clever um one of his first wishes is i think it's his first wish um was that he wished uh for peace on earth and i won't tell you what the consequences of of that were or what happens but i really like the twist of it um and it it tracks really well because the genie explains that the reason i can't explain it without spoiling it but i like that she gives a very valid reason for why what happens when he wishes for peace on earth is the only way to achieve peace on earth. And I really liked that. Yeah. And then he has to reverse the, uh, reverse the wish, which I, I enjoyed. Um, and then after that, I'm, and I'm winding down this review cause I can't give away much more, but, um, after that Mulder does the thing that I want I always want characters in these types of stories to do. He goes completely thorough. Like he is typing up this legal document for his third wish with all of these different clauses, all of these different things. Um, like thinking about every single possibility of it. And, uh, and I love it. I really loved it. Um, the actual third wish that he does is pretty obvious from the start, um, what it's going to be. And it's, it's, it's a cool, it's a, it's a cool way to end the, to end the episode. But I don't know. By that time, I kind of, uh, wasn't too, um, uh, I wouldn't say wasn't too impressed by it, but I wasn't too, it didn't, it didn't hit me too hard or anything. Um, but overall, I would say the pacing of the episode was actually pretty strong because it's because you have like one portion of the episode being the uh, being Mulder and Scully investigating this situation while Anson and his brother are are using the genie, and then you have this whole other side or this whole other half of the episode be about Mulder with his three wishes, and um, I think the pacing and, and the way that the storylines um, converged while also existing uh, solo from each other um, really was pretty, pretty well done. Well drawn. I really, uh, I really dug it. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, just so wait um, season seven, episode 21 of the X files. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of anthology, which by the way, sorry guys, I've been so um, uh, erratic with my review, uh, my releases. I meant to mention this at the top of the episode, but I just want to apologize and I'm going to try my hardest to be as, to be weekly. Um, but I mean, there's a possibility that things will come up that I won't be able to devote the time to, uh, do it every single week, but I'm still here. I'm still, you know, plugging away. I'm still doing anthology. It's just sometimes it may be a week or two in between episodes. So apologies for that, but I'm, I hope you guys can bear with me as I kind of get back onto a hopefully good schedule with this. Um, also make sure you check out my bonus reviews of, uh, dimension 404 on Hulu. Um, I'm about to sit down in, uh, record my, my review of Cenothrax episode two of it. Um, so that's cool. And, uh, let me know what you think. If, and obviously if you like what you've heard and you want to help support the show, um, you can do that by leaving a quick review and a rating on iTunes. Um, it helps out a lot. It gives, it's a great way to give me feedback and, um, just show that, you know, you're listening and I, and I really appreciate every review and rating I get on there. Um, and if you've, 
you're feeling if you're feeling particularly particularly generous, you can also donate to the podcast through PayPal by clicking on the donate link on anthologypod.com or going to uh, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and choosing one of the um, anthology specific reward tiers on the uh, on on that for a recurring monthly payment. Uh, so yeah, so next time on the podcast, I'm going to be reviewing Nervous Man in a $4 Room, which is the Twilight Zone's third episode of its second season. And as a bonus review, I'm actually going to be reviewing um, the first episode of the Twilight Zone's uh, 1985 uh, revival. Uh, that episode is Shatter Day and A Little Peace and Quiet. Um, that bonus review comes courtesy of a suggestion from listener Greg. So appreciate the, um, I appreciate the, the, uh, the, wow. I appreciate the suggestion again. It, like it's, it's at this point, it's like two thirty AM. I don't know why I decided to record this so late, but anyway, thank you Greg for that recommendation. Um, uh, so you guys will definitely hear my thoughts next week on Nervous Man in a $4 Room and Shatterday slash A Little Peace and Quiet. And yeah, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For more of Anthology and a full archive of my episodes, go to anthologypod.com. And if you want to help support the show, the easiest way you can do that is by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. You can also make donations to the show courtesy of the donate link in the show notes of each episode and on anthologypod.com. For recurring donations, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and just choose one of the Anthology reward tiers. If you enjoy Anthology, feel free to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friend Tiny and occasional guest co-hosts over at ObsessiveViewer.com. You can also join The Obsessive Viewer Facebook group at Facebook.com slash The Obsessive Viewer. For book reviews and commentary on the world of reading, check out our sister site at ObsessiveBookNerd.com. And for philosophical discussions from a secular viewpoint, check out my friends Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Finally, if you'd like to contact me with your thoughts on the show, my reviews, my bonus reviews, or for any other reason, you can tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, send me an email at Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com, or send me a message on Facebook and like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.